...presidents of the SPR, and some, like Houdini, in a private capacity. During our evenings together, we enjoy a busman's holiday, applying our combined expertise to the investigation of famous cases that have never been satisfactorily explained. Sometimes we agree on a solution. More often, we agree to disagree. More often, Fodor repeats, smiling. I cannot remember an occasion when the verdict was unanimous. And I know none of you are going to agree with my solution to this case. The Bell Witch, is it not? Correct, says Podmore. And as is fitting, we have selected our American member to describe this American ghost. No more interruptions, gentlemen, if you please. Pray silence for Mr. Harry Houdini. Houdini has his notes ready. He gives the others a rueful smile. Book research isn't my style, and this is the first case I've investigated where all the suspects have been dead for over a century. But as Podmore would say, that just makes it more challenging. And what a tale it is. Dr. Fodor here has called it the greatest American ghost story. I would go further. I would call it the greatest of all ghost stories. Over the years, the true facts have become so encrusted with layers of exaggeration, misinterpretation, false memories, and plain out-and-out lies that the result sounds like one of Sir Arthur's wilder fictions. Our greatest difficulty will be to figure out what really happened. I won't presume to do that. I will just give you the story as I have worked it out and let you decide what is important and what isn't. Ready? Then here we go. In the early part of the 19th century, Jefferson County, Tennessee, was being settled by Easterners looking for new land. Most of the settlers were well-to-do farmers and slave owners, the little community was civilized enough to possess a school, presided over by a handsome young master and several churches. The country these men and women discovered was a lovely land of rolling hills and stately forests, of fertile meadows and rippling streams. Into this earthly paradise, in the year 1804, came Mr. John Bell and his family. Mrs. Bell, a good Christian woman, had obeyed the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply. By 1804, she had given birth to six children. John Bell was 67 years of age in 1817 when the trouble began. Despite his age, he was as hale and hearty as a man 20 years his junior. Unlike the aristocratic planters of the southeastern states, the Washingtons and Jeffersons and Lees, Mr. Bell was no gentleman of leisure, but a farmer who worked with his own hands. His children praised him as God-fearing and industrious, sober and devout. Lucy Bell, affectionately known to her friends as Luce, was approximately 15 years younger than her husband. Her children spoke of Lucy with the highest praise. She was simply the best woman living. At the time of the witches' persecution, only five of the Bell children were living at home. The youngest was little Joel, just four years old. Richard was six. Golden-haired Betsy, the only remaining daughter, was twelve 
going on thirteen. Drury was sixteen, and John Jr., a grown man of twenty-two. John Bell Jr. served under Andy Jackson in the campaign that ended in the Battle of New Orleans, where a rabble of backwoods hunters thumped the British regulars. John was among these riflemen. No doubt he celebrated the victory in the genial taverns of New Orleans. It was a charming city even then. Small wonder that after being mustered out, John Jr. refused to stay down on the farm, but found excuses to return to the bright lights and the charming Creole ladies. The first of the family to see something strange was John Bell Sr., but he attached no significance to the incident at the time. He had left the house after breakfast in order to give his instructions to the overseers. As he strode briskly toward the north end of the farm, he carried his rifle over his shoulder in the hope of getting a shot at a rabbit or some other tasty addition to the menu. Instead of a rabbit, he saw a peculiar-looking animal that resembled a large dog. The creature must have been very peculiar indeed, for John Bell fired at it. He would not have done this if he had thought it was a domestic animal belonging to one of his neighbors. The creature promptly vanished. Mr. Bell assumed he had missed, and that the animal had taken to its heels. He thought no more about the matter. Then, a few days later, Betsy and Drury reported seeing strange creatures about the place. Betsy also saw a woman strolling in the orchard. When she spoke to it, the apparition disappeared. No doubt, Mr. Bell dismissed these tales as the products of youthful imagination. He had no reason then to connect them with another bewildering set of phenomena that had begun about this time: knocks and raps on the doors, and scratching sounds on the outer walls of the house. These could also be rationally explained. Raccoons have been known to gnaw at wooden door frames. Rats and mice invade even a well-run house. Gradually, however, the knocking at the door became so distinct as to suggest that someone was demanding entry. But when the door was flung open, no one was there. Then, almost a year after they had begun, the sounds found a way into the house. The day was Sunday, sometime in the month of May, eighteen eighteen. The family had gone to bed. The boys shared a single room. John and Drury occupying one of the big double beds, and Joel and Richard the other. Betsy's room was across the hall. The parents slept on the ground floor in a chamber directly under Betsy's. The candles had been put out, and the boys were settling down to sleep, when Richard heard a sound like a rat gnawing on the bedpost, not far from his head. The others heard it too. The older boys jumped up and lit a candle. Ready to kill the offensive intruder, but as soon as they got out of bed, the sounds stopped. Examination of the post and the rest of the bedstead showed no marks of gnawing. The boys went back to bed. As soon as they lay down, the noises resumed, only to cease when they rose. This went on for hours till long after midnight. The exasperated boys searched the room again and again, finding no sign of a rodent. Or even a hole by which one might have entered. This procedure continued night after night, week after week. Betsy's room was also affected. The sounds moved to her chamber while the boys were searching theirs. 
No one could sleep, particularly after the sounds increased in intensity. Now they resembled the scratching of a dog instead of a smaller animal, such as a rat. Before long, the invisible creature began to vary its performance. One new sound was a bizarre gulping and smacking. The bed covers started to slip off the beds. Noises like heavy rocks falling and massive chains being dragged across the floor kept the bewildered bells up until one or two in the morning. The family got used to the mysterious noises. They were only noises, after all, and had not harmed anyone except by depriving them of sleep. The bells took to snatching naps during the daytime. As if annoyed at being ignored, the intruder moved to direct action. It is no wonder that many years later, Richard retained the most vivid memories of this first physical attack. I had just fallen into a sweet doze when I felt my hair beginning to twist, then a sudden jerk which raised me. It felt like the top of my head had been taken off. Richard let out a yell. His little brother, Joel, began to scream. An invisible hand was tugging at his hair, too. Then came a shriek from Betsy across the hall. She continued to scream until her parents rushed upstairs to see what was the matter. They found Betsy sitting up in bed, shaking from head to foot. Her luxuriant golden hair hung tangled and twisted around her shoulders. The child was so upset that her parents had to take her to their room for the remainder of the night. From then on, the disturbances were impossible to ignore. The children were constantly tormented. The covering...